Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. During the Tang Dynasty in the mid-8th century, a military leader named Li Baozhen was frustrated with his aging body. He had achieved much glory and material wealth in his life, but he was aging and facing the fact that death was approaching. But he also was having dreams that he was riding triumphantly through the sky on a crane. Surely this was an omen. At the same time, Li Baozhen met Sun Chang, who was a fang shi, a word that can be translated as an alchemist, a wizard, magician, but also as a doctor or a physician. Sun Chang offered Li Baozhen a concoction that he promised would allow him to transcend death. Inspired by his dreams of slipping away from Earth on the back of a crane, Li Baozhen took the elixir, only to become incredibly sick. Another doctor, this one a Taoist practitioner, attended to Li Baozhen and brought him back to health. But when Li Baozhen met Sun Chang, Again, the Feng Shi asked why he had given up and gotten help from another doctor. After all, he assured him, Li Baozhen was so close to transcendence. Reassured, Li Baozhen took even more of the elixir. But this time, when he sickened and slipped into unconsciousness, he did not send for another healer. He died. Li Baozhen's experience captures something of the complexity of Chinese medicine. Competing ideas of how to heal, the use of various powerful medicines in careful and not-so-careful doses, the intermingling of spiritual and medical philosophies, and the quest for health and power, even for immortality. For this installment in our series of the five C's of historical thinking, we are contemplating the historical concept of complexity, and today we're doing that through an exploration of Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine is a vast subject, and there's only so much that we can cover in one little podcast episode. So think of this as an introduction rather than a thorough excavation, if you will, of the topic. But I think that you'll find that it's about as complex as it gets. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. (laughs) 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous Augur and Excavator-level patrons. Carl, Hannah, Lauren, Colin, Edward, Iris, Susan, Denise, Agnes, Jesse, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Complexity can be deceptively simple as a historical thinking skill. It means things are complicated, right? But for many folks, I actually think complexity is really scary because thinking with complexity means accepting that things are not necessarily as clean, straightforward, and often as praiseworthy as we might like. Complexity requires that we let go of certain simplistic and comfortable narratives that we might be very attached to. I love the way, for instance, that historians Thomas Andrews and Flannery Burke begin their description of complexity written for the American Historical Association's uh, Perspectives magazine, quote, reenacting battles and remembering names and dates require effort, but not necessarily analytical rigor. Making sense of a messy world that we cannot know directly, in contrast, is more confounding, but also more rewarding. Yeah, that's a great, a great definition. It is. And actually, this is a re- I'm repeating it because Avril actually included this definition in her episode on Josephine Baker, too. But I chose to keep it in because I think that it is it bears repeating. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, you know, you picked a good topic here, right? So Chinese medicine is a really good way to think about complexity because it was and is not a easily definable thing, right? Uh, As Vivian Lowe and Michael Stanley Baker argue, quote, from a discussion of its mythic origins through the coalescence of many theories about astrophysiology in early China to the medieval heyday of religious healing pluralism, it charts the changing emphasis in what was always a plural healing environment. Indeed, the ethnic and cultural boundaries of China itself are contested. So let's start at the beginning. As Elizabeth just read in that quote, Chinese medicine has mythic origins. In 221 BCE, the Qing dynasty, under the military might of Qin Shi Huangdi, 
first unified a number of warring feudal kingdoms into one imperial entity, which eventually would come to be called China. After Qin Shi Huangdi's death, the Han Dynasty came to power. While they benefited from the Qin Dynasty's tough control over these feudal kingdoms, they also wanted to create for themselves a new identity, one that was distanced from the powerful and unpopular Qin Shi Huangdi. Part of that process was creating a mythic history that told of a long-ago golden age after which the Han had modeled itself, thus linking their power to something grander, more ancient, and more authentic. According to the mythology, Earth was a chaotic place until the five sage emperors arrived and domesticated it. The five emperors corresponded to the five directions, north, south, east, west, and center. The yellow emperor and red emperor, who was also known as the divine farmer, were also associated with medicine and healing. While both were important in the foundations of Chinese medicine, the divine farmer played a particular role in establishing the importance of experimentation and data collection in the healing tradition. The divine farmer raised humans from being savage and uncivilized by teaching them agriculture. Further, through careful study and trial and error, the divine farmer classified all of the plants, determining by tasting them which ones were safe, which ones were healing, and which ones were poisons. The Yellow Emperor, on the other hand, looked to the sky for understanding of health and healing. He identified the ways that the human body relates to cosmic powers, cycles, and calendars. Health was associated with numerical codes, and thus his knowledge, recorded in a text called the Daybook, includes divinations that guided the most healthful times for human activity. China's empire was bureaucratic, filled with educated civil servants who created vast written records of every aspect of the empire. Similarly, to be a physician in China required mastery of all previously written medical texts. Because of all this, Chinese medicine has always been textual, meaning that knowledge has been passed through written records, such as the Divine Farmer's Materia Medica, or the Yellow Emperor's Daybook. A Materia Medica is a compendium of therapeutic properties of pharmaceutical substances. Several texts, all credited to the Yellow Emperor, make up the canon of Chinese medicine, or to quote Lowe and Stanley Baker, quote, the human body as a microcosm, the origin of disease, and some therapies, principally acupuncture and moxibustion, and a few drug treatments. There's debate about when the text was first written, but there is consensus that it originated in the Han Dynasty, which stretched from 202 BCE to 9 CE. Through the earliest text that scholars have been able to find came the printed one in the 12th century CE. Moxibustion is a traditional healing practice similar to acupuncture, except instead of piercing the skin with the needle, you place a pile or little ball of mugwort leaves on particular spots on the body and burn them like incense, heating the point rather than poking it. The Yellow Emperor's Canon of Medicine, sometimes translated as the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Medicine, is very similar to an ancient Greek philosophy text because it's presented in the form of a dialogue between Huang Di, the Yellow Emperor, and his learned ministers, including his physician, Qi Bo. 
Through their conversations, Huang Di learns about the universe, the workings of the human body, and the art of healing. In the first discourse, Huang Di asks his ministers, quote, I've heard that in the days of old, everyone lived a hundred years without showing the usual signs of aging. In our time, however, people age prematurely, living only 50 years. Is this due to a change in the environment, or is it because people have lost the correct way of life? Chibo responded, In the past, people practiced the Tao, the way of life. They understood the principle of balance, of yin and yang, as represented by the transformation of the energies in the universe. Thus, they formulated practices such as Taoin, an exercise combining stretching, massaging, and breathing to promote energy, and medication to help maintain and harmonize themselves with the universe. They ate a balanced diet at regular times, arose and retired at regular hours, avoided overstressing their bodies and minds, and refrained from overindulgence of all kinds. They maintained well-being of body and mind. Thus, it is not surprising that they lived over 100 years. Chibo then goes on to explain that by, quote, seeking emotional excitement and momentary pleasures, which disregards the natural rhythm and order of the universe. Because of this, they age prematurely and they die younger than their ancestors. And this discourse gives us an introduction to the quote-unquote universal truth of health within Chinese medical theory, living in moderation and in balance with the universe. The Yellow Emperor's canon also describes qi, the fundamental stuff of all life in the universe. Qi moves around and through the body, analogous to how many Western cultures think about energy. When moving through the body, qi moved through mo or mai, which means something like channels, vessels, or pulse. These channels traveled along throughout the body. If you've ever seen an acupuncture chart, you likely have an idea of what we mean. Imagine lines that run from the top of your head to your toes, then several additional lines that go around your body, such as your waist. Each one of these meridians is associated with an organ, the lung meridian, the heart meridian, the kidney meridian, etc. Along those meridians, there are points, which correspond to certain disorders, areas of pain, or aspects of health. By piercing those points with very thin, fine needles, practitioners could manipulate or unblock the chi to bring about pain relief or healing. For instance, by piercing stomach meridian 36, which is located just below the knee on the shin, you can treat digestive disorders, immune deficiency, fatigue, and may also experience emotional grounding. Liver meridian 3, which is on top of the foot between the first and second toes, treats headaches, regulates menstruation, and and reduces high blood pressure. The Yellow Emperor's canon describes ways to read the pulse of the chi, which surfaced on certain points of the body in order to make a diagnosis. So very similar to reading the pulse, like taking someone's pulse, but you would be it wouldn't necessarily be at a pulse point that we think of. It would be a pulse point associated with the points of of the chi meridians. Along with the concept of qi, the Yellow Emperor's canon described the body as a microcosm of the universe's macrocosm. And so you'll notice lots of associations between things here, like elements and energies and seasons. And so we'll explain that in more depth soon. Hong Di explained this concept this way. 
Quote, in nature, we have the four seasons and the five energetic transformations of wood, fire, earth, metal, and water. Their changes and transformations produce cold, summer heat, dampness, dryness, and wind. The weather, in turn, affects every living creature in the natural world and forms the foundation for birth, growth, maturation, and death. In the human body, there are the zang organs of the liver, heart, spleen, lung, and kidneys. The chi of the five zang organs forms the five spirits and gives rise to the five emotions. The spirit of the heart is known as the shen, which rules mental and creative functions. The spirit of the liver, the hun, rules the nervous system and gives rise to extrasensory perception. The spirit of the spleen, uh, of yi, rules logic and reasoning power. The spirit of the lungs, or po, rules the animalistic instincts, physical strength, and stamina. The spirit of the kidneys, the ji, rules the will, drive, ambition, and survival instinct. He went on to explain that any overindulgence in emotions, so say getting really, really angry or feeling very depressed, creates imbalances within the body, which damages the body's chi. Huang Di wrote, quote, Failing to regulate one's emotions can be likened to summer and winter failing to regulate each other, threatening life itself. So when you don't have balance between the seasons, it's it's the same thing as not having balance between those emotions um, and sort of systemic problems that it causes. In the exact same way, um, if there were imbalances in weather or in nature, there could be outbreaks of disease. To quote Huang Di again, quote, if there is a cold invasion in the winter, febrile disease will develop in the spring. An invasion by wind in the spring can result in digestive disturbances, food retention, and diarrhea during the summer. If there's an attack of summer heat during the summer, in the autumn, there may be malaria. If dampness invades in the autumn, there will be coughing attacks in the winter. So each one of those seasons, it's not... It's not necessarily that if there's dampness in the winter, there will be coughing attacks. It's like an imbalance between the two Mm. seasons themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. So the health and the functioning of the body and the health and functioning of the world around it were interconnected. For instance, Huang Di explains that in the spring, the weather becomes warmer and the plants begin to grow, putting forth unripe and sour fruit. That sourness strengthens the liver, which in turn nourishes the tendons. So we're going to quote here, um, and it's another lengthy quote from Huang Di, but it just really captures how complex the theoretical basis of, of Chinese medicine in this sense was. All right, so this is the quote. During the spring, the subtlety and vastness of the universe, the intelligence and intuition of the human being, the ability of the earth to produce 10,000 things, the natural movement of the wind, and the upward motion of all plants collectively produce the movement of the tendons, the color green, the shouting of voice, the spasms and convulsions, the eyes, the sour taste, and the angry emotions. These are all associated with the liver since the liver is responsible for maintaining the patency of the flow of energy and its nature is movement and expansion. So the Yellow Emperor's Canon, or the classic, how, you know, however you're feeling, um, really shows here how intricate Chinese medicine is. 
health and illness weren't individual. They were tied to the season, to the climate, to certain colors and flavors, to particular behaviors and emotions, even to this idea of the subtlety of the universe. That quote that Elizabeth just read suggests the existence of two concepts central to Chinese theories of health and medicine. The first is the concept of yin and yang. This is one that you most certainly have heard of before, especially if you were alive in the 90s and you had a yin-yang necklace, (laughs) as many of us did. Um, Unlike the qi, the yin and yang aren't forces or really even substances, um, but instead referred to, to borrow the words of Vivian Lowe and Michael Stanley Baker again, quote, relational categories that organize, uh, quote-unquote, myriad things in complementary opposition. So it's it's not they are not substances themselves. It's a, a term to refer to these interdependent kind of categories of things. So yin and yang were often opposites that went together, such as back, front, inner, outer, or day, night. According to Huang Di's dialogue with Qi Bo, yin and yang is the carefully balanced interconnection of everything. Quote Heaven and earth, the masculine and the feminine principles, the chi and the blood, all reflect the interplay of yin and yang. Water has the property of coldness, fire the property of heat. The interdependence of yin and yang is reflected in all things in the universe and cannot be separated. When Wang Di asked how this applied to healing, Jibo replied by explaining how, when those careful balances were disrupted, it affected the health. If there was too much yang qi, you could develop a fever, rapid breathing, tremors, shaking, dry throat, uh, dry throat and mouth, irritability, and abdominal distension. With an excess of yin qi, you would feel cold with clammy sweating, shivering, and convulsive spasms of the hands and feet. As people aged, their yen naturally decreased, leading to vision and hearing deterioration, organs losing function. The yin and yang worked in conjunction with the wuxing, translated as the five agents or five phases, and we'll refer to them here as the five agents. The five agents is a theory of interconnecting groupings of five important agents— There were five major planets. In English, there's Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, Mars, and Venus, which each ruled a certain force. Each of the five is also associated with a series of other things, elements, colors, tastes, seasons, directions, days of the week, etc. Take, for example, the wood element. First, it's important to note that it's overly simplistic to think of the wood element to think of the wood element as just being like a a log or a chunk of wood or something. Instead, the wood element referred more to the spirit or the essence of wood. Wood evoked strength and flexibility, like a bamboo plant. Wood also evoked the springtime, new growth, sensuality, and fertility. Each element of the wuxing had a list of things that it possessed or evoked, each was associated with one of the five Zhang organs that we that Elizabeth mentioned earlier. Wood, for instance, was associated with the Zhang organ, the liver, 
and with the foo organ, the gallbladder, as well as with the eyes and the tendons. Zhang organs were considered yin, and fu were associated with the yang. The element was also associated with a bodily fluid. So in the case of wood, it was associated with tears, as well as a particular finger. In the case of wood, again, this was the index or the pointer finger. Wood was also associated with the virtue of benevolence, the emotions of anger and kindness, the flavor sour, rancid smells, and the childhood phase of life. In contrast, water, for instance, was associated with the planet Mercury, the kidneys, the bladder, the ears, the bones, and the pinky finger. It was also understood as connected to wisdom, resourcefulness, and uh, salty flavors, putrid scents, both old age and conception, and also the winter months. So lots of associations, lots of interconnected associations. The Wuxing wasn't just a list of five different things with different traits, but an interconnecting cycle where each one of the elements or networks leaned on, produced, controlled, and contributed to each other. Water creates wood and destroys fire. Wood creates fire and destroys earth. This is an example of how Chibo described this interconnection. In this passage, he is describing the causes of a particular kind of ailment. Quote, there is also a pattern of disease we can call the abnormal transmission of pathogenic qi. This specifically refers to cases of excess. In this abnormal sequence, the disease that is manifesting in its host organ was transmitted from the sun of fire, the spleen, or earth. Now that the heart is in excess, it transfers its pathogenic qi to the element that it controls, metal, or lungs. Once the lungs are pathogenic, their qi is transmitted to the element that metal controls, which is wood or live. Because the element that wood controls, the earth, is already in excess, the wood then insults its mother, the war, or the kidneys. When the sequence reaches this point, where all five Zhang organs have been affected, death is imminent. These interconnections were not just limited to the human body. Han physicians and philosophers understood the microcosmic body as not just connected to the universe, but also to the political state. Imperial rulers wanted their rule to be itself a kind of qi, pervading the very universe, even the internal workings of the bodies of their subjects. Living correctly, honoring one's ancestors, and performing rituals according to prescribed strictures all ensured an ordered society as well as the approval of the gods. Civil unrest, on the other hand, signaled that the gods were unhappy. Because of this, the medical theory and philosophy outlined in the Yellow Emperor's Canon appeared also in political treatises. The Lushi Chun Kaiyu, a text from 239 BCE that mediates on politics and society, contains strictures for leaders to follow in order to stay in balance with the universe. According to the text, the emperor had to carefully adhere to the calendar and cosmos when choosing what to eat, what to wear, and where to live. The yin and yang could also describe properly balanced political relationships, such as noble and lowly, controlling and being controlled, justifying and reinforcing the roles, for instance, emperor and subject. 
So far, we've described the Chinese theory or philosophy of medicine, but we haven't really discussed practitioners or forms of healing. Because medicine was interconnected with overarching philosophies of life, most of the healers that Chinese people might seek out were also religious authorities. The Wu were akin to shamans or mediums. They could be both men and women. Um, And they performed rituals, including dances, songs, and prayers that promised to rid sufferers of illness and to banish harmful spirits. Cults sometimes arose around these religious healers, such as the Yellow Turbans, followers of a mystic named Zhang Zhue, who eventually led a rebellion in 184 CE against the leadership of the Han Dynasty. The yellow turbans gained followers by promising them healing, using incantations and burning talismans. Their sacred text, known in English as the Canon of Heavenly Peace, added to existing theories of medicine and cosmology with instructions for healthy meditations, breath exercises, as well as guidelines for diet and the use of medicines and those talismans. Perhaps the largest religious connection to this theory of medicine was Taoism, or some people pronounce it Taoism. Taoism is a philosophy that emphasizes living in harmony with the natural flow of the Tao, or the natural order of the universe. Through right living, meditation, and meditative practices such as Tai Chi and Qigong, Taoists cultivate uh, and harmonize their Qi, which can provide bodily health but also societal health. During the Han Dynasty, a religious cult known as the Way of the Celestial Masters developed, which also placed health and medicine at its core. The Celestial Masters taught that disease was a punishment for one's sins and could be cured by confessing and begging forgiveness from the celestial bureaucracy, a term for myriad powerful cosmic deities. In order to follow through on their atonement, Taoists were required to do public works such as building roads or feeding the poor. A later Taoist movement, under the leadership of Tao Hongjing, wrote an extensive pharmaceutical canon. As China interacted more with other cultures, facilitated by the trade route known as the Silk Road, Taoism was influenced by the introduction of Buddhism. Buddhism introduced new elements, such as the immortality of the soul through meditation and prayer. But overall, Buddhism was similar enough that it was easily adopted by many Chinese people and was incorporated into Taoist and Chinese philosophy, with the Buddha just being easily slotted into Chinese celestial bureaucracy. Soon, Buddhist monasteries became centers for social support, including places for medical care and healing. Just as the yellow turbans had, Buddhists were able to leverage health as a tool for winning converts. This wasn't without controversy. During the Tang Dynasty, the Emperor Wu Zhang cracked down on the monasteries and closed them, seizing their assets and taking over their hospitals. But the monasteries weren't entirely eradicated and continued to be an important part of Chinese healing networks. Most importantly, the Buddhist monasteries were critical in the process of recording theories of Chinese medicine as monks copied manuscripts to be sent to their brethren in more rural areas along the Silk Road. The Tang Dynasty was also marked by the ascendancy of medical alchemy. Alchemy was part of the Taoist tradition in that it was, according to Lowe and Stanley Baker, 
quote, an attempt to understand and master the workings of the cosmos by studying its physical nature. In simple terms, we think of alchemy as an early kind of chemistry that was focused on trying to turn various base metals into gold. But in both Eastern and West traditions, alchemy also involved the quest to create potions and elixirs that would result in immortality. Within Chinese alchemical traditions, the practice of waidan, or external alchemy, the quest to understand and master the universe, resulted in a quest to also master death by creating an elixir of immortality, by creating concoctions with minerals, metals, and other substances through processes of heating and cooling. While alchemy in China can be traced back to the Han Dynasty, its golden age was the Tang Dynasty, when Taoist scholar and alchemist Tao Hanjin produced a number of texts that were supposedly dictated by various Taoist deities. These texts described immortality elixirs, largely made up of substances like cinnabar, mercury, lead, and arsenic. Elixirs might offer immortality, or they might also bring the consumer into an elevated state of enlightenment, perhaps even closer to the divine. While these highly toxic substances could be toxic or even fatal, and often did result in the deaths of those who took them, they might also produce hallucinations and ecstatic visions, reinforcing the belief that poisons could also be powerful medicines and elixirs. During the Tang Dynasty, no fewer than four emperors are believed by scholars to have died by poisoning in their pursuit of enlightenment and immortality. Xianzhong in 820, Muzhong in 824, Wuzhong in 846, and Zhuazhong in 859. Medicine became even more of a political issue during the Song Dynasty between 960 and 1127. The Song was beset by a series of epidemics. It's hard to say exactly what these epidemics were, or even quite how many of them there were. One scholar argued that there were 33 epidemics during this era, but another could only identify 21. Part of the problem with identifying these epidemics has to do with language and culture. For instance, what qualifies as an epidemic, especially when different cultures understand disease differently, right? If you have a culture that has a completely different conceptualization of what a disease is, it's really difficult to try to go back and and figure out what they mean by epidemic. So the terms used to refer to epidemics in Chinese sources vary widely. For instance, yi, which means, quote, a situation where all people are sick, or li, which could mean, quote, an evil disease or pestilence. When combined with the word qi, it might refer to a particular disease-causing element, such as a pathogen or an evil spirit. According to scholar Asaf Goldschmidt, quote, to survey epidemics in the general sense without dealing with either specific diseases or notions of pathology, the best terms to look for are yi and wen, or their combination wen yi. These terms also appear with modifiers, such as disease epidemic, ji hunger epidemic, ji great epidemic, dei seasonal epidemic, shi yi. 
These are the more general terms denoting either large-scale epidemics or epidemics that were perceived as disastrous, even if in reality they did not impact a large region or claim numerous lives. So even trying to determine how many epidemics may have taken place during a certain dynasty is extremely complex, right? Either way, because of recurring outbreaks of disease, the Song Dynasty placed emphasis on medical research, sponsoring the writing of new medical texts and the establishment of the first imperial medical school and setting in place a more formal process for medical education. The Song also sponsored a massive push to identify and catalog herbs and other healing materials to create new compendiums of medicine. One result of all of this was the emergence of a new category of medical practitioner, the Run Yi, a scholarly elite group of physicians. In 1057, the Song established the Bureau for the Editing of Medical Texts, which was in charge of evaluating and publishing medical treatises. The Bureau, following their mission sent by Emperor Ren Zhang, was responsible for locating, editing, and revising medical texts that were located in archives around the empire, then duplicating and distributing them for use around the empire. The Bureau was staffed by elite physicians, along with bureaucrats with no medical background. During its 12 years in existence, the Bureau published 10 books. Nine were revisions of pre-existing medical texts and one new text, the Illustrated Materia Medica, which was drawn from that massive survey that they did of medicines. While the Bureau officially stopped its work in 1069, printing of those medical texts that it developed and revised continued for several decades. In the following dynasties, the Southern Song from 1125 to 1275, the Zhen from 1127 to 1235, and the Yan, 1279 to 1368, the government took further efforts to protect public health and use new technologies to disseminate medical knowledge. The Southern Song was especially concerned with public health, which resulted in a clash between the traditional and the scholarly forms of healing. Southern Song officials found that the Wu, those shamanic healers, were dominating care and cracked down on their ability to practice, destroying their altars, requiring them to study approved medical texts, and sometimes forcing them to abandon practice altogether. During the Zhen and Wan dynasties, printing technologies revolutionized the ability to print and spread approved scholarly medical theories. In the 18th and 19th century, as the European imperialist presence in China became even more pronounced, Western medical theories and practices rivaled traditional beliefs. Christian missionaries used medicine as a tool, as had previous uh, religious groups in China, um, as a tool to win converts, especially among the impoverished who didn't have the same access to medicine as elites who had more choice in where they could access their care. Western medical texts, usually translated by Jesuit missionaries, were introduced. And while they were at first received as sort of foreign oddities, they eventually started to catch on. The mid-19th century European innovations in anesthesia and surgery found a more interested Chinese audience, but they still remained somewhat skeptical. 
With a theory of medicine that emphasized the flow and balance of qi rather than cutting into the body, Chinese physicians didn't see much value in adopting those new practices. Surgery had certainly existed in China, but it was very limited. Um, I, I think they referred to it in one of the sources that I consulted as skin deep surgery. So like not anything, um, you know, particularly invasive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was typically limited to things like lancing abscesses, stitching up wounds, removing foreign bodies, um, some practices of blood met- letting. And then there was a couple of slightly more complex procedures. But all of this was associated with a kind of blue collar medical grunt work. And this was actually pretty analogous to the barber surgeon or the chirurgeon in the European medical tradition, right? That um, this kind of messier, dirtier, Mm -hmm. more physical work was considered unskilled and unscientific. It was still understood as a medical worker, but not a physician or a learned elite doctor. Through the 19th century, the question of westernizing China was polarizing, especially after the failed Boxer Rebellion against the European imperial powers. Some saw adopting Western practices, including embracing Western medical theories and practices, as an abandonment of Chinese tradition, while others saw it as the only inevitable way forward. During the 20th century, it became common for Chinese men to travel abroad to study medicine, bringing that knowledge back with them. Slowly but surely, opinion changed on the place of Western medicine in China. Even the words used to refer to medicine changed. Up until the 19th century, all medicine was referred to as yi, which referred both to practitioners and the practice of healing. Variations on the word might refer to one of those elite scholar physicians or to the grannies or old women who provided midwifery and nursing care. But by the 19th century, the word yi zhu came into use to refer to learned medicine, a term introduced by Jesuits to mean scientific, greed, Western medicine. Now, instead of medicine being one thing, it was suddenly two. Throughout the 20th century, medicine was was now split into two different things, Zhi Yi, Western medicine, and, and Zhang Yi, Chinese medicine. Now, of course, the history of Chinese medicine does not end with the Boxer Rebellion or even with this era of Westernization. But like Marissa's episode on the history of fat, this is a complex topic, (laughs) obviously. Um, And it seems like this is the best place to split and to make a second, potentially a second episode. Um, So I promise to return to the topic of Chinese medicine and put together a part two that explores modern Chinese medicine in the late 19th and through the 20th century. Um, and I already started looking at some really interesting sources for that. So it's it's definitely something I promise that I will do. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm actually super interested in that. Um, many listeners probably don't know this, but I've had like three or four different lives in my <laughs> one short life. And I used to be a massage therapist. And um, so I was trained in shiatsu, yeah. reflexology. Um, But I'm also thinking about pregnancy massage. And, you know, one of the reasons that you want to go to like a skilled pregnancy uh, massage therapist is because there are, um, you know, certain 
points that are associated with, you know, qi and Chinese medicine, particularly around the ankles that correspond directly to the uterus, right? And so you don't want somebody going in and digging on these spots if you are, you know, prone to some kind of uterine contraction or miscarriage or things like that, right? So it's interesting to think how um, just kind of in modern medicine, I mean, even if you go into like a chiropractor's office, right, you're going to see an acupuncture chart, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how Western and Eastern medicine, particularly in what we call, you know, quote unquote, alternative medicines Mm -hmm. have really meshed so much. Um, And just on a, you know, another note, like I'm doing this kind of online zoom all week kind of witch's coven Mm. um meet and greet this week and you know it's just lots of different people talking about their different practices this that and the other and how much of um, modern spirituality and wicca or you know magic with a k has also incorporated so much of 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 eastern medicine chinese medicine into it so it's just really fascinating how um it it's it's just I don't know, becoming all kind of meshed together, right? And even how Western medicine is looking at Eastern medicine and and realizing like, oh, we don't we don't know everything. There's lots yes, to learn from. Absolutely. I'm so, from thinking about chi yeah. and things like that. I'm so glad that you said that because I mean that that kind of could be like a whole nother episode. <laughs> um sort of how right. <laughs> how Eastern theories and philosophies of medicine sort of become new ageified um right co-opted new ageified yeah. i mean all kinds yeah. of incorporated right into these as you said like alternate medicine sort of theories um and and that actually in some ways made it challenging to do the research for this episode because i would be trying to sort of look at this historically and trying to like mm-hmm. get a sense of as you were saying like those chi points and like because i wanted to give it a couple of examples i i myself have no experience whatsoever with acupuncture um or with massage therapy or any of those things and so i was like for myself like okay what are a couple examples of what of what this looks like because it so exemplifies the complexity of it right that like a certain point of the body is associated with all of these other things um Mm-hmm. But then you'd go online to try to find like acupuncture charts or something. And I found it really difficult to find like, okay, which one of these do I feel like is an is a sort of authentic and accurate representation of what I'm looking for? Because there you search up an acupuncture chart and it's like, you know, all sorts of wild sort of right. something you buy <laughs> off of Timu exactly. or whatever. Yeah. And like no. some of them are very well and it and true, it's like it's also like, okay, well is this an acupuncture chart that represents what um, you know, a practitioner in eighteen seventy or in eight seventy six right. you know, uh BCE exactly would would see versus somebody in 2023 right right? like they're gonna look different just as a anatomy chart from the western hemisphere of you know i don't know 11 26 versus today like they're gonna look super different exactly and and so that kind of adds like another challenge the other thing that i think is important is just to highlight what you said about how like in many ways, Western medicine is learning to take those other theories or understandings of medicine 
more seriously. And I think this is mm-hmm. something that obviously is, is a continuous struggle, but it is really important and also really difficult to learn to think about these other theories of medicine, not as not even as alternate or as, you know, like um, new agey medicine, but like. But as foundations yeah, of medicine, other as, other as, cultural ways of understanding health and bodies and medicine, right? That that the right. Western we 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 believe that Western quote unquote scientific, and I'm saying it in quotes not because I don't believe in science, but because you know we believe that this but that science has a certain sort of um, empiricism behind it that can't be questioned, right? That this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Western scientific medicine is medicine. And these other right. theories is the only exactly. medicine, the only correct. These medicine. other theories are sort of like backwards, old fashioned, traditional, right? Um, and that right. that's not necessarily the case. That's a very sort of Western and colonialist way of thinking about that, right? Um, and so this was mm-hmm. I really valued doing this episode because, as a historian of medicine, I have never studied Chinese medicine, the history of Chinese medicine, and um, I started out by reading a book by a colleague of mine, Yan Liu, um, on the history of healing with poisons. Like he's talking about that alchemical tradition where you took things like lead Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like made it into an elixir and drank it because you were, you know, hoping to become immortal. And he's, it's, it was almost so complex that I was like, this is above my pay grade. Like I need to go back to brass tacks and like, I need to learn about just the history of Chinese medicine before I can even engage with what Mm -hmm. he's talking about, because it's a totally different framework. Right. And it was Mm -hmm. fascinating. It was really interesting. And and it's going to change the way that I teach my history of medicine classes for sure. Awesome. What's it? What's the name of his His book book is called healing with poisons. It's very good. I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just just to kind of throw it, obviously, I haven't read his book, but, you know, you say, you know, taking taking things like lead or whatever. But I mean, remember, too, like mercury up until the late 19th century was a cure for some venereal diseases. Right. So it's not that foreign when you when you kind of take it down to those. It's really not. It's really not. And I mean, I was thinking as I was reading it about even things that we there are a number of medications that people take today that the dose makes the cure, right? Like, oh my God! Well, chemotherapy, chemotherapy is exactly right? like, what I thought. Of. There is yeah. a point in time where you know they will cut it off because the the hurt that it's doing to the body right. outweighs the help, right? But regardless of if it's your first session or your third session, you're going to have uh, damage to the body right. even from the first session. Yeah, it's exactly. just balancing. You know the the benefits versus the right. the damage. Right, so. but because I mean, we're talking, gosh, we could sit here for hours and talk. <laughs> exactly, but I sorry, I was just going to kind of tie that up, but just by saying that, like, but we even though we are familiar with those types of examples of exactly the same thing in our modern experience, we still tend to look at like you know, the emperors of the Tang dynasty taking these elixirs and being like, what dopes, right? Like what morons right. drinking like lead and cinnabar <laughs> and, and arsenic and killing themselves, right? Even though we know yeah. that we do things that are not dissimilar to that, 
obviously not sort of immortality mm-hmm. elixirs. There's a lot of people who take things that they believe are going to be immortality elixirs today, just different forms, right? Well, how is that any different, though, thinking of chemotherapy as an immortality? Yeah, I mean, exactly, you are essentially exactly. creating a longer life by giving yourself poison, right? right? So yeah. I don't think it's it's that. But, but I see what yeah. you're saying. And I mean, it's the same kind of conversations like I'll have with students when we're talking about the humors, right? right? And like, right. why on earth would they, you know, bleed somebody when they were obviously dying, right? right? And it's like, well, because it's a different understanding of of the body like it's so hard to like wrap our heads around when we are in this um you know idea that the modern western medicine is the only way yeah to understand science yeah exactly you know so thank you all for listening we invite you to get in touch you can follow us on facebook the formerly artist formerly known as Twitter <laughs> and Instagram at dig underscore history. Um, you can join our Facebook group, the Dig History Pod Squad. If you have a comment or question or want to share some kind of some kind words with us, you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org. We love listener mail. If you are an educator, we have dozens of episodes that are especially created for use in the classroom, along with resources, including full lesson plans. Just check out our website, digpodcast.org. We do realize that recent changes to curriculum in states like Florida and Texas will complicate being able to use our podcast episodes in the classroom. So please reach out if there's something we can do to help you, um, you know, kind of figure this out and and use these episodes in your classroom. Um, You're also going to find full bibliographies and show notes and scripts for all of our episodes. Um, There's going to be resources and everything, uh, a link to our swag store, all at digpodcast.org. Bye. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Uh, sure. Let me unbury myself. <laughs> Listeners, I'm, I'm recording this under a blanket. She looks like a my ghost. My <laughs> neighbor is getting a new roof. Yes. Jing Zhang in 1820. No, Wu Zhang in 8- did I say 1920? You said 1820. <laughs> oh. Learning. What? <laughs> I think I had a stroke when I wrote this sentence. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to end that sentence there. I'm just going to I'm going to say that again. During the spring, the subtlety subtlety During the sp- I know. (laughs) It's correct in my head, but not through my mouth. During the spring, the subtlety... Oh my God. During the... Those shamanic healers... Shamanic healers. Those shamanic healers. A materia medica is a compendium of therapeutic... Of therapeutic... Compendium. A materia medica is a... Oh no, it is compendium. Sorry, that's correct. It's been up since like 5.30, but I haven't really spoken with more than like five words to anybody, so this is That's really working. Early. Yeah, I'm trying to do this thing where I get done, you know. I like, I like it's, it. It's, 
negligible. <laughs> I should probably do that, but I'm not capable. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.